As I mentioned at the start of worship, today is a Baptism Sunday, not only in the Episcopal Church, but in other churches as well. And it got me to thinking, how many people are being baptized today? We have two here, but if you add it up, maybe just even in this time zone, hundreds of people are being baptized today, thousands on this day, the Feast of the Baptism of our Lord gives you a sense of the magnitude of what it means to belong to Christ and to be in the body of Christ. Indeed, baptism gives us a sense of belonging. If you remember, at the conclusion of baptism, I take the young person or the adult in my my direction and put on their head a cross with holy oil, saying the words, you are sealed by the Holy Spirit in baptism and marked as Christ's own forever. So you belong. A child of God, you belong. I got to thinking about our tagline, belonging with purpose, and what is it we belong to? We belong to the household of God. We are a child of God in our baptism. And then that got me to thinking about our purpose, and it's the same, to be a child of God. Our belonging and our purpose is to be a child of God and to live that identity in the world. So salvation is not strictly for personal benefit. We are not saved in baptism just so that we can go to heaven or something like that. But it is for the benefit of all creation as we continue and engage in the mission of God in the world. I'm reminded of a quote by Orlando Costas. He says... Salvation comes by way of conversion from sin and self to God and neighbor. Conversion from sin and self to God and neighbor. That's how our salvation is known. And conversion happens not once, but throughout our lives. I'd like to tell you a little bit about Orlando Costas. I just came to meet him, so to speak, last fall in my studies He died in 1987, but through his writings and those that have written about him, I was introduced to this man. Orlando Costas was born in 1942 in Puerto Rico, and there he lived for the first decade of his life until his family moved to the mainland because of the financial stress that Puerto Rico was exhibiting during that time. Orlando was put in the care of his aunt and uncle to live in the Bronx while his parents went to Chicago in hopes of finding work. Orlando's uncle was German, his aunt was Puerto Rican, and he learned quickly from his uncle that in this neighborhood of Puerto Ricans and Irish, he should lay low. It's a rough neighborhood, he was told, so don't give yourself away. Now, Orlando was about 11 or 12 years old, and he spoke very little English. And so this was a difficult year, to say the least. His parents moved back east after a year and took up residence in Bridgeport, Connecticut. As Orlando reflected on this particular time, this is what he had to say. The experience of living in an intercultural married couple with an intercultural married couple in an inter-ethnically conflicted neighborhood, Puerto Rican and Irish, in a precarious and decaying educational system, produced such a traumatic psychocultural shock 
that it left an indelible mark on my life. Now, as anyone who remembers 1954 and that period of time, whether you lived it or you studied it, it was rough. And race and ethnicity were one of the ways in which it was so rough. When Orlando moved to Bridgeport, Connecticut with his family, he started to attend Black Rock Church, which is still there. When they were in Puerto Rico, they were Protestants, and they continued that practice here in Connecticut. And Black Rock Church gave him a wonderful experience of community and fellowship in the household of God. He was musically inclined, and they fostered and nurtured that experience within him. But it became difficult as the year or two progressed for him to reconcile his sense of belonging and his sense of not belonging at Black Rock Church. You see, for some reason, and I'll speculate in a minute, the church wasn't able to embrace his Puerto Rican identity. I speculate that they were, at best, ignorant, unable to see how meaningful that part of him was to himself. Orlando couldn't deny it. He was definitely Puerto Rican, and he had just lived through a difficult time in the Bronx, and his family had moved already a couple of times. He couldn't deny that. And yet the church couldn't accept it, perhaps through ignorance. They were blind to the racism that was a part of them. Maybe they over-theologized it and thought, oh, we're all one in Christ, and so we don't see any division here. But Orlando couldn't bring his full self into the church. It wasn't recognized. And so he left Black Rock Church, conflicted by what he knew and what he longed for. It wasn't until several years later that he engaged, uh, went to a Billy Graham crusade, and there found Jesus. And in that talks about his first conversion, the time when he knew that Jesus loved him And that love was real to him in Jesus. Several years later, Orlando moved back to Puerto Rico. And it was there that he talks about having his second conversion. Immersed with the culture that had raised him for the first decade of his life, he was able to embrace again his Puerto Rican identity and saw and discovered that he didn't need an intermediary for Jesus to be real to him. Whereas in the white dominant structure that he had been introduced to in New York and in Connecticut, in Puerto Rico, there was no white intermediary. Jesus wasn't translated to him in English, wasn't brought to him in the particular social and ethnic structure that he had experienced Jesus here in the United States. He describes it in this way. He had been stimulated, he said, I had been stimulated and inspired by my conversion to Jesus Christ. And in Puerto Rico, I was able to understand that the Son of God not only had a Jewish identity, Jesus of Nazareth, but a Puerto Rican and Latin Latin American one, the Christ of Brown America. From this point on, my cultural experience gave me a new Christological understanding. Orlando discovered that Jesus was available to him in his particular context. And that he also discovered that Jesus had been bound up when he was here in Connecticut and New York, not made available to him because of the racism that was prevalent 
in that area. Now, maybe it's a little hard to hear the topic of racism in church. I know that we come to community and worship and want to feel good and enlightened and encouraged in our life of faith in the world. And I do think that that's an important thing that we do for one another when we gather for worship. That being said, our uncomfortability is not meant to be a deterrent in moving forward into the abundance of God. So often when we feel uncomfortable, we pull back into what's familiar. But if you're thoughtful about it for a second, you'll realize that the uncomfortability always remains a barrier. It always prevents you from going forward. Uncomfortability is Jesus' invitation to come through, come beyond it, to move through the uncomfortability to the bigness and greatness of the mercy and the goodness of God. And that's what Orlando discovered in his second conversion, and it became even more profound in what he described as his third conversion. He realized that the God that was known to us in Jesus brings salvation to all people and all creation, that nothing is left out. And it's that we, when we go on beyond the barriers, if our uncomfortability or whatever it might be, when we go beyond those barriers and discover Christ is out there, then we discover the goodness and the mercy and the greatness of God. So I bring this up because I believe that each one of us wants to know the peace of God that passes all understanding. We want to know the hope and the joy of living in a world that's imperfect. We want that. And Jesus' invitation to us is to come through the uncomfortability so that we can see and experience the transformation that he's about in the world. Our vision as a congregation, as a world made whole by God's transforming love. Those were our words. The leadership put those words together to articulate what we hope for. A vision is out there on the horizon, and the horizon is always out there. And so we look out to see a world made whole by God's transforming love. And maybe the discovery for each of us is that that transformation is for us too. We're transformed. We are transformed, which means change happens. I bring up Orlando this morning partly because there's a lot to share that he has brought into my awareness of the goodness of God. But primarily this morning, I want to highlight his emphasis on conversion as a lifelong experience. Conversion, turning from sin and self to God and neighbor. We do it time and again throughout our life, and we get better at it, hopefully, at turning from sin and self to God and neighbor. I want to share with you a lengthy, um, somewhat lengthy, it's only maybe eight lines long, um, quote of his. And first I'm going to share kind of section by section and dialogue with you a little bit about it, and then I'll read it in its entirety. He wrote this in the early 80s. Since such a great salvation is a work of grace, the only way it can be appropriated is by repentance. Appropriated. How do you get something? If something is a gift to you, you can't get it. You have to let it be given. And so Orlando is reminding us that the way to receive is to repent. That's what we do. That's how we appropriate the grace that God has for us, is in turning He goes on to say, repentance involves at least a twofold process. 
First, turning from idols, injustice, and selfishness. And second, unconditional commitment to the gospel. You'll hear this when I talk to the parents and godparents in a minute. This two-fold process, turning from idols, injustice, and selfishness, and turning toward an unconditional commitment to the gospel. I'll ask three questions of the parents and godparents, and they're all renunciations. Renouncing our sinful desires that draw us from the love of God, renouncing Satan and the evil forces of wickedness, renouncing all spiritual forces that deny us and draw us from the love of God. That's the turning. That's the one part of conversion, turning away from those things. And the parents and godparents will renounce them. And then the second part is an affirmation. Do you turn to Jesus Christ and accept him as your savior? Do you put your whole trust in his grace and love? Do you, there's one more. Promise to obey him, I think it is. So that's the second part of conversion, turning toward unconditional commitment to Christ. Orlando goes on to say, commitment to the gospel implies putting one's confidence in Jesus Christ and becoming an ally in his cause, or in simpler terms, following the way of the cross, a mission of sacrificial, a sacrificial service. Repentance places salvation in the perspective of mission and service, not allowing it to be diluted into escapism or individualism. I think this is a profound point. I grew up Methodist, and in the South, um, always baptism was about a personal salvation. It was just about getting yourself into heaven, and that's why it was so important. It was only about me. But Orlando reminds us that's not what it's all about. That's the first part of conversion, is drawing you to the love of God and then participating in the mission of God in the world. He goes on to say, the gospel offers a salvation that's liberated from mission and transforms life into a great service to God, humanity, history, and the entire creation. All of creation. And isn't this what we saw in Jesus? When he comes up out of the water and hears God's words to him, remember, this is my my son, my beloved, in whom I am well pleased. It's from that that he goes out into the world to proclaim salvation. It's not an individual thing for him to go prancing around and have everyone adore him. No, he's going out to the oppressed and to the marginalized, the vulnerable and the victims. He goes out to say, you too are a part of the kingdom of God. And in so doing, challenges the very structures that are in place that want to domesticate the transforming love of God in the world. So here's the whole quote in total. Since such a great salvation is a work of grace, the only way it can be appropriated is by repentance. Repentance involves at least a twofold process. First, turning from idols, injustice, and selfishness. And second, unconditional commitment to the gospel. Commitment to the gospel implies putting one's confidence in Jesus Christ and becoming an ally in his cause, or in simpler terms, following the way of cross, which is a mission of sacrificial service. Repentance places salvation in the perspective of mission and service, not allowing it to be diluted into escapism or individualism. The gospel offers a salvation that's liberated from mission and transforms life into a great service to God, humanity, history, and the entire creation. 
In a minute, we're going to invite Wyatt and Henry to come forward for baptism. And as we embark on this sacrament, we too will participate in renewing our own baptismal covenant. And you'll see in each of those five questions that we answer, they're all directed toward the mission of God in the world. They're all inviting us. Each question invites us to participate in God's saving work in the world. It's an impossible task, except our answer reminds us of how it can happen, with God's help. And so we participate in this baptism of these two people and renew our own baptism to claim again our place in the saving work of God in the world, participating in the mission of God in the world, allowing God to transform us as we repent and turn conversion again to dedicating ourselves to God and neighbor. This is our invitation, and with God's help, it can be made known to us and to all. Amen.